0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 771st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution.
1: I think one of the ways we go south as humans is not recognizing we're part of nature and that we share nature with everything else.
0: Today on our podcast, we have someone who is expanding self-reliant skills one step at a time. We're talking with Chris Nice about his organic farm in Oklahoma. Chris was born in Dallas, Fort Worth, and after deciding that he was interested in organic farming, he bought many books on the subject and studied the basic ideas. Using a small portion of his father's land, he created an organic garden for two years, and he drove 300 miles round trip to the property almost every weekend. About a decade ago, he realized that he was truly passionate about organic farming, sold his house in the Burbs, and bought some land in southern Oklahoma. He has developed a nice organic farm with work trade opportunities, open to the public visits, and even some organic farm vacations. Welcome to the show today, Chris. Are you ready to rock? I am. Thank you for having me, Greg. Awesome. Awesome. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Absolutely.
1: I think that covers a lot of it. I, earlier on, prior to all of what you had covered, I had actually I spent several, three years in Russia traveling around teaching English. And wow, I, I didn't, I was never really quite certain what I wanted to do in my life. So I just found various things I was interested in. And so I was deeply passionate about uh, Russian literature, for instance. And so after, eventually I went back to university, got a degree, a post-baccalaureate degree in Russian studies, and then uh, spent a year with my father building a house. And then after that, he uh, he sent me off to Russia for three years. I, I met my ex-wife in Samara, Russia. We went back to the United States. Eventually she went back home and I sold the house. I wanted to stay close to the DFW area, to stay close to my father and my grandfather grandmother. And so that that really limited my options. And of course, when one considers the price of land, anything near DFW, we're looking at 10, sometimes $20,000 per acre, but I wanted more to work with. And so I just kept going a little further, a little further. And finally, I found This very interesting property on the southernmost tip of Oklahoma next to the world's largest casino. I have no interest whatsoever in gambling, but it did seem to me as if it might provide some opportunities to at least have people near the farm because some of them might be interested in what I was doing and not only gambling. And uh, yeah, that was the beginning. Oklahoma is a very interesting process for acquiring land. You are required to get an abstract, which means they go back all the way back to the beginning and you have to get every single person to sign off on. I don't own any portion of this and so on and so forth. It was a grueling process to eventually end up on the land, such that I was out of a place to live for more than six months. So from the time I knew where I wanted to be, but I sold my house and it just took forever to finally get the land itself. I went from place to place and eventually even rented this place for a short while until the process was finally concluded. And thankfully, I was able to get this land and I have very much appreciated it. It's been a laboratory where I got to try out all sorts of different ideas that I had read about. And I think one of the things I would say is I wasn't precisely certain what I wanted to do. So I tried to do a, a great many things, probably too many things, which maybe it's a mistake. But if you don't know exactly what you want to do, then it isn't bad to try a lot of different things, figure out what works for you, and then begin to cut back on the things that don't. And you had mentioned in some of your other podcasts, the notion of waiting a year before you do anything, understanding the area. That makes a lot of sense. I will say that the one thing I put a well in almost immediately, I think that made perfect sense as far as it goes. And I was thankful to learn that the water begins beneath my property around just 30 feet beneath my feet.
0: And then it goes
1: on for another 30 feet. So I believe that it's essentially an underground portion of the Red River. And so I have... Unless something goes south, I have nearly endless water resources. And in fact, that has to a degree informed the sort of farm that I've been trying to pursue because I have all these resources. So that's why I moved in the direction of aquaponics, which I understand you've spent a lot of time doing that sort of thing. Definitely would like to pick your brain about that one day because and then just all sorts of other things. But yes, many of the many of the projects that I undertook related to that and then Amongst the books that I got back in the day it was a book on by Joel Salatin. I understand that you've interviewed him several times, which must be amazing. Yeah, have, it was. And amongst which was like how to make $20,000 on 10 acres in six months or something like this or whatever. And I didn't even know who this individual was, but I would say that he became almost like my guru a little bit in terms of so many, so much of what he ha- has done is inspiration for what I try to do. I love how uh, he tries to put everything to work for him, the animals and create systems that, that all work together in really brilliant and interesting ways. And these are things I like to stand on the shoulder of giants and he certainly is such an individual. So he was, yeah.
0: Nice. And that's how we learn. I you know, th- that, and that's a big part of the reason I do this podcast is to, interview people like you that are starting this journey that hopefully inspire people to jump in and do something. Do your epic. Absolutely. Really what you have there is a laboratory. You're experimenting. I've said for years, growing food is one great big grand experiment. We just need to jump in and figure out how it's going to work where we're at. So what kinds of things are you experimenting with?
1: Um, certainly in terms of just all the different plants that I grow. So the piece of land I have is interesting. I live on a bit of a hill and the lower portion of my land is fairly decent, but the hill upon which I live is all sand. And Oh, wow. But that's okay in a way because like my initial endeavor back at my father's place, what I had to do is his land was all clay, but there was some place where there was sand. So he, he grabbed a lot of sand for me and i made compost and i made my beds from 50 50 sand and compost and so i have some experience so that's one of the ways i went about it plus there's a nice in denton texas they collect refuse trees and various like organic matter and then they create compost and i really appreciate that so i don't know how many i probably bought several hundred tons of compost from them over the years I, in order to, and then I would just make, and I would make my beds from scratch, 50-50 compost and whatever soil or sand I had. And, uh, but it's been tricky. Like the lower portions of my land do pretty well. They retain water well, because there's at least some degree of organic matter. And I've been working on it for 10 years, but as I go up higher, (laughs) it's uh, very difficult to, I'm endeavoring constantly to add more organic matter. I'm playing with notions of like hugel culture and things like that because of the drought issues and so on. But I'm still struggling with it. I was fascinated by the notion of drip irrigation because I wanted to ensure I had the best root structures and so one of the things I did is eventually installed a 1500 gallon black tub at the highest part of my land and I've set up a system using just pressure. I've set up a system of drip irrigation that's able to hit maybe 50 or 60 different growing areas simultaneously the trick, of course, is the water itself is rather high in iron. And so I have to ensure that that it doesn't get clogged up. But when it's running appropriately and I'm on top of my game, I can basically drip, drip irrigate everything at once. And, wow. um, and so it's so I would say that was you know, a decent success. So otherwise, I've, I think I grow 50, 60, 70 things. that the, We got the bulk seed by recently from you guys, 75 different kinds of seeds. So I absolutely just right. love, try everything, see what works. I'm inspired more recently to do a better job of saving seeds as a result of some of the information that you provided. So I definitely want to do a better job of that. And having listened to a few of your programs recently, just figure out what works best for me and continue to save seeds. And let's see, I've done fruit trees. Every year, got to do the tomatoes, of course. That's everyone's favorite. Peppers of all sorts of different types. I really like the three sisters. Oh, Yes. Shortly in the next week or so, we'll begin to plant the corn and we'll wait for two or three weeks until the stalks are long enough. Then we'll plant the pole beans and then go with squash or some sort of melon or something like this. And then for a long time, I was really fascinated by dehydrating food. And I found that there was a lot that I could do with that. That's one of my many passions is is just food. I'm a foodie for sure. Yeah. Let's not go there yet
0: because I have some specific questions about that that I'm excited to ask you about. But really, what you've been doing is experimenting with different things to see what would work. That's absolutely true. It looks like you tried a bunch of everything. I have. And you're deciphering your way through what's working. So what's working? And, And when I let me clarify that further. What's given you're running a farm? What's working to make money?
1: Ah. The eggs do well as far as the chickens go. I've made products associated with my tomatoes. I'll make things like salsa roja, salsa verde, and dehydrate that into a powder. And so do things like that. I have, see, part of the issue is it's tricky about what you can legally sell because for instance, I raise rabbits and in Oklahoma rabbits are considered rodents and I don't think you can legally sell them at all. But if oh, I wow. go down the road to Munster, Texas, I can buy a, one carcass of a rabbit for 25 bucks if I could have that price point, then that could be my business. But uh, I imagine the chicken lobbyists ensure that doesn't happen or something like this. Hard to say precisely. Let's see what else I have. Okay, a recent one that I think that I would like to create a product from and maybe eventually sell successfully would be the elderberry that we do on the farm.
0: Um, oh. I
1: know that... I'd say, I don't want to get into it. Like, I just listened to the young lady that you had on some episodes previously. And yeah, it's fascinating what you can do with it. What we've been playing with is the, we make a freeze dried version of it. That's absolutely amazing. But recently I did some research and I have all this extra mint and I wasn't precisely sure what to do with it. It's so invasive and frustrating at times, but it turns out that has some great benefits in terms of health. So I was wondering if I could add a little bit of mint to the elderberry concoction and these sorts of things. I'm fascinated by the notion of medicinal herbs and creating things to uh, engender health without using our medical system, which seems more based on profit. Oh, I call that our death care system. Yeah, I wasn't going to say those sorts of things too, I haven't heard enough about how you say such things, but Uh, that would be a whole different topic. I have done a deep dive on the system in which we live. And one of the things that motivates me to divorce myself from it is the more and more I understand what motivates it and why it is what it is.
0: Yeah, Yeah, precisely. And elderberries, those are exciting. I, that interview with Samara on the podcast propelled me in the direction of, I have a hundred elderberry plants that are getting ready to go in the ground in the next 60 days.
1: So Um, did you buy those elderberries before the conversation or after?
0: After. Okay. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. All right.
1: That's wonderful.
0: Yeah. Wow. And so I found a local provider and elderberries, interestingly enough, just grow from cuttings. So you oh, can yes. cut a branch and stick it in the ground and the dang thing roots.
1: So I started with five plants and I made 200 cuttings. And, and I got at least 100 to 150, I'd say 125 at least, yeah. made new plants. Not to mention those five plants have morphed into 50 plants. So they sp- it spreads so readily. Yeah, how long they've been on the ground? Just since last year, two years This is the second year. Yeah, the first okay. year, we just began to get some berries and the birds came in. I recall that advice, which is to pick them earlier. <laughs> so don't wait, because if you wait, then something will get to them first. And so that's actually excellent <laughs> advice, which I will be taking advantage of. So I'm really curious about your farm.
0: How big is it? And if I were to walk up the driveway, what am I going to see?
1: First it's an interesting question because the farm is not merely the eight or so acres that I own, it's additionally 54 acres across the road. A friend of mine decided that he wanted to have access to land but he didn't want it just lying fallow and he wanted to find someone that would be interested in it. Initially myself and three friends, we all talked about participating in this endeavor. One by one they all flaked out but I never did and I am the steward of 54 acres across the road and I own eight acres currently, and I'm looking to acquire an additional five. If you were to walk up the road, you would, on the right, you would first see a a couple, a plum tree, and this, I don't even know what sort of tree it is, a pretty purple tree that's relatively tall. I I also had some peach trees and other things. One of the mistakes I've made in my farm is allowing goats to free range. Um, (laughs) Some of my initial fruit tree endeavors have failed as a result of goats. To to all your listeners, be careful about goats, keep them up, or just understand anything you love, they will love more when they eat it and destroy it. As you walk up the driveway on your left and your right, you'll see quite a few black walnut trees. And uh, so the ground is littered with all these black walnuts, which means an endless supply of squirrels going up and down the trees. And uh, additionally, I have uh, six dogs, two Great Pyrenees, two Anatolian Pyrenees, and two Border Collies. So there's an endless game in which the dogs endeavor to catch the squirrels, but the squirrels are much faster and they never, I have yet to see them ever catch one so far. And then once you get up to my house, which is just a short distance from, it's probably a couple hundred feet, on your right up to my house, there is a, that's where the well is. And like I said, it, it goes down maybe 30 some odd feet and the water continues for another 30 feet. That was the first thing I did on the farm and it allows, it definitely has informed the direction this farm has taken. And then to, to the right of the, the, I put in a series of fences to try and keep my livestock out of my growing areas. So we have what we would call the sort of upper middle garden, which is a series of 10 strips in which there's drip irrigation beneath each. And that's where I like to do the three sisters. And then going beneath that, you'll end up with, I'm actually going to grow peanuts beneath that. Because the price of livestock food has skyrocketed so much that I'm endeavoring as best I can to produce my own feed. So the feed I use, I, I have a feed from Tony Feed and Seed in Munster, Texas. It uses no soy and no corn. I believe that you are what you eat, eats, And so I want to make sure that the animals on my farm eat the best sorts of things. Right? So they get a 22% protein feed and I feed everything on the farm that actually my dogs will eat it my every sort of fowl I have birds like I have guineas and chickens and ducks and I used to have quail not any longer geese turkeys, I love bourbon red turkeys, the goats of course will eat it just it's it's such a wonderful feed I'm certain that if something went south that I could take this feed grind it up and make a wonderful bread. Yeah. (laughs) it's entirely useful. But with that said, the price has nearly doubled. And my farm initially was more almost like a zoo, I've heard it said. And I think of it that way, like my little solace in the world, all sorts of different birds. And I love it. I think one of the ways we go south as humans is not recognizing we're part of nature and that we share nature with everything else. Thank you. A safe place for myself and for my animals. So my own little garden of Eden of sorts. In fact, that's why I ultimately went with the Pyrenees, because some of the issues I've had in the past related to predators, like bobcats and neighbor's dogs and coyotes and other things, owls, hawks, so on. My Pyrenees will chase off owls, they'll chase off hawks, there's not, nothing gets close to my farm, and all my animals are now safe. I don't exactly know if I'm going to feed the Pyrenees in an effective manner, because they're very expensive, but at least predation is no longer the issue that it once was.
0: Yeah, the Pyrenees are big dogs, right?
1: Yeah, the Maximus is my younger male. He'll probably end up being 150 plus pounds. And the Samson is about 150. And yeah, which I always like big dogs. Yeah. Okay, so continuing down from the, where I'm going to put the peanuts, I read this book called Animals, Vegetables, Miracles. And the, the author was talking about locavorism. And she was waxing eloquent about asparagus and how it's the very first thing that shows up. At my father's place, I wanted the joy of asparagus, but I didn't have three years to wait, so I cheated, and I found a place in Tennessee where I could buy a three-year-old and put them in the ground, and so I got asparagus the first year. I have an excellent patch of asparagus, which continues to create additional asparagus, and the notion that it'll be there for 20 years or thereabouts if I treat it well, I love that. And yes, to me, I consider the beginning of spring to be the moment in which the first spear breaks the ground. That's ah, It's on! So I'm always excited when that happens.
0: Nice.
1: Um, Beneath this, I used to have a lot of strawberries. I need to, they are not there now. I don't know. I've got some beds there to work with. I put different things in lettuce, other things. And then beneath that, it's where I have this massive effusion of of the elderberry, which is growing constantly. And I have some blackberries and blueberries, goji berries. So just different things. And I got to say, as far as goji berries seem to be incredibly robust. I'm impressed. It seems like I can't kill them and I've had so much success killing other things. That's a, 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 if only they were tastier, but I'm guessing there's some antioxidant properties that make them quite awesome. So who knows, I'll find their use. If things are dying at your hands and that's what we learned from. Oh, I love it. And then beneath that I have, I just call them my four normal beds. They're just like 40 foot long, three foot wide. When I made them, I dug two foot down and then took compost and I just sat there and handcrafted the soil. And put it back in. It was a very long, intense process. But that year after year, I use no-till because I'm very interested in the life, the soil beneath, and, and the fungi and all that fun stuff. It's amazing. So every year, because I treat my soil with respect, it gets better and better. And, yes, and, and exactly. So that's, I often think, you know how from time to time, you'll see comparisons of organic food grown against conventional, quote-unquote conventional. That's a misnomer, of course it's not really fair, right? If you just take some garbage piece of land and try to grow something organically when it isn't, it hasn't, it doesn't have the nutrients, It's, it, it, yeah, it's going to fail. That's not fair. Conventional farming, I call it chemically dependent farming. So it, this notion, like if you were to take away those chemicals, you have dirt, you do not have soil, and you won't grow anything but weeds. And I wish people understood. I feel sorry for many farmers in the sense that they seem so passionate about this notion of growing food for the world, but I think they've been misled. They're really just a part of an unfortunate process associated with the maximization of profit for certain companies that couldn't care less about the planet and only care about their shareholders. And these individuals have been misled, and they're certain they're doing good work, but they're not. They're destroying the ground upon which they live, and I wish they could find wish they would be patient with those who suggest there are better ways. Have you heard this notion that more civilizations have been destroyed through plows than through swords? I haven't heard that, but it makes perfect sense. Think about what it takes to have a civilization that's 5,000 years old like China. The way that we treat our land, we're never going to last 300 years.
0: Yeah, we definitely do live in interesting times, that's for sure. Early on, you had mentioned about your aquaponic system. Let's talk about that. I'm fascinated. What does it look like and how many fish are you growing and
1: what kind? As the two most common would be catfish and tilapia. And I went Mm -hmm. with catfish. And I would say maybe mine's not properly an aquaponic system. Like I've done the barrel-ponic system, which is really neat. I've done IBC tote system. And, the, and I've seen it where it's cycled fully and you've gone from the ammonia to the nitrites to the nitrates and that glory of seeing all that take place. But the thing is, my pond is probably 20,000 gallons and it's probably 30, 40 foot long, 30 foot wide and seven foot wow. deep at deepest point. And I have, I made shelves on two sides so that I eventually I'll add aquatic plants. For instance, I would love to be able to get duck. Weed going because I know it's 40% protein and it might be a good way to provide food both for my my fish for my birds. But you could even make a protein powder out of it. It's an mm. amazing thing. I know it's. I think if you could keep it under control and harvest it appropriately, probably would be a really good way to go. But in any case, I don't. My grow areas at the moment are simply like four IBC totes full of. I used hydroton initially, but I found some pumice stone out of Idaho that I've gone with since then. I bought like a sixteen hundred pound, whatever it's called, this huge thing of it, and it's worked fairly well. But I think I need my growing area needs to be vastly larger to accommodate to biofilter that amount of water, is what I would say. Yeah. Additionally, I have quite a lot of I have over twenty ducks that like to sit in that pond, and about ten geese, and oh they're my constantly gosh. depositing. Mm-hmm. And as such, so I and in fact, I had a catastrophe last year where. We had, my pumps went out, the pump to my system went out, and we got this amazing, we had no rain for a long time, and then suddenly we had this two or three inches of rain all of a sudden, and it kicked up all the debris at the bottom of the pond, choked out all the oxygen in the system, and I lost like a hundred fish. And uh, I didn't even know how many were in there, I didn't even think there were that many. I was like, on the one hand, it's amazing, apparently it's done surprisingly well until I buried them in an endeavor to improve some of my beds, but still that hurt a lot. Oh, um, that. And, but I mean, there are still some in there now. I think I'll likely add some more catfish, but I just, I understand what I need to do is add a whole lot more growing area. Yeah. And maybe even just, so I can take my pond and allow, I can open it up and allow it to drain out into the back. And so maybe what I could do is constantly change the water out a bit and use that, all the nutrients associated with that to grow things as the pond drains.
0: Sometime in the past five or six years, I've heard somebody doing a Yes, absolutely. Ducks. With ducks, right? And so the ducks come along and they poop in the water and
1: that's what feeds your plants. Yeah. So it's a combination. I just, what I really need to do is just vastly increase the size of my growing areas, right? But That takes time and money just as a sort of interesting side project. One of the things I'd like to do is tie my aquaponic system into. So I have a 600 square foot rabbit colony. And then next to it, I have a 600 square foot. I call it like a duck and a goose habitat. I want to create a system, bring the water from the pond up to the highest point and then have it run down a series of gutters that are at the top of both of those pens. And then try to grow things that the animals can eat inside. So this. Oh, yes. Increase the amount of area of biofiltration taking place because of all the plants. And then I can create shade. I can create microclimates where it'll be cooler because it gets so very hot here and feed my animals somewhat, thereby mitigating feed costs. And then ultimately the whole thing will just come right back to the pond in a circuit. Yeah. It's on my list. My list is long.
0: <laughs> cool. And you could always use that water from the pond to water your garden beds. I absolutely do. I use it it quite yeah. often. All right. One more thing before we transition freeze dryer. I have been fascinated with this concept of freeze drying. And it says that you purchased a freeze dryer. Tell me about it.
1: Prior to having purchased the freeze dryer, I was really interested in just dehydrating food. And that's an excellent method to to practice. But I just couldn't help it. The zenith of preservation technology is the freeze dryer, at least, so I I decided that I wanted to get one. And I think it's just fascinating all the different things you can do with it. Like I said, so my favorite product to date is the elderberry extract that we made. We add just a little bit, less than half of the sugar they recommend in the recipe we found and some cinnamon and other things. And the end product, is, it's very interesting. It's almost like cotton candy or something. It disintegrates in your mouth as you put it in. But this whole spoonful of sugar sort of thing, one spoonful of this on a daily basis should help your immune system. It's quite nice and interesting texture. And, but then otherwise, I have an abundance of eggs. And oftentimes, like, I don't want to make another quiche or I don't want to make. But now, for instance, I'll make goose egg noodles. And then I'll, then I will cook them up and dehydrate them. And one of my fat passions, as I had mentioned, is just cooking and food in general. Like when I was in Russia, I had to learn how to make borscht. I learned how to make a special pizza recipe when I lived off the Sea of Azov from a Georgian. And he taught me how to make milk from scratch. And then just different things like that. Anywhere I go, when I was in Mexico, I tried to learn some stuff. And just my, I have a farm manager named Diane, and she and I are both passionate about it. So we we don't watch a lot of TV, but if we do, we're probably watching a cooking channel show, some sort of uh-huh. Just always trying to learn about new ingredients, new cultures. And so the, one of my goals upon having gotten the, the freeze dryer was I have two deep freezers and two refrigerators. And the initial goal was I need to completely empty out one of each because I recognize that resiliency is a good word that I heard recently. And if you have hundreds of pounds of, say, chicken, if you lose your electricity for a few days, then there is no way you're going to be able to turn that into something that where it doesn't go to waste. So I have gone to taking the chicken out. All right, what do I want to do with it? Chicken alfredo. Okay, that sounds fun. I've made so many different kinds of chickens. Mexican chicken. We went the Asian route. We do that. We got to brine it. We got to smoke it. I'm trying to think of every darn way that I can make chicken interesting and then freeze dry it. I used to think it would be fun to start a business in which I made travel rations. If you were a backpacker or something, yeah. because I've had quite a few of those and they tend to not be great. So
0: (laughs) that is an understatement
1: right? So if I can make gourmet quality food, freeze dry it, and then I thought that would be neat. And it works on every level with, with my interests. And then generally speaking, I would guess by now we've had it for less than a year and I probably can live off of what I've freeze dried for the, at least four or five months. And I probably need to eat over four to 5,000 calories, mean, at least 4,000 calories a day. That's just what my system requires. And yet still I have enough nutrients set aside just nice. to freeze. Yeah. So all of those sorts of things. And then uh, I mentioned, okay, so we did the elderberry, but now I'm fascinated. What if I add mint to it? Or what if I, I want to go down the medicinal route? What sort of plants can I grow and then help people create health through, have all, there's a million different types of things. So I love the fact that there is a never-ending amount of knowledge and I've only just begun to scratch the surface. And the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know anything. and. Uh, Soon enough, I'll pass away and I'll, I will have just, just barely begun to scrape the surface of so many awesome things. And I just have, to, I'm not happy if I'm not learning. And this interesting thing I've set up for myself, this farm and everything else, I, there, there will never be an end to the learning.
0: Yeah, I, that's why I love doing this podcast. I've interviewed over 750 people and each one of them, I get to learn something new from.
1: It's just so cool. Okay. So we, I, have you heard of a chinampa? Chinampa? I haven't. C-H-I-N-A-M-P-A. So I'm also a little bit fascinated by ancient growing systems or things like that. So a chinampa is, it's like, it is the realization that swamps are the most fecund of all biomes. And so what you do is like in South and Central America, they would use a series of canals. I actually want to create a chinampa going out of my aquaponics system. A series of, imagine like an eight turned horizontally and squished, where I should be able to take my kayaks and run up and down it. I can use the muck created by the fish to put fertilizer on the sides. And I dream of just sitting over my kayak and harvesting my strawberries or something as I pass through these different things. And and yeah, just resilient food systems, all these different ways to, to combine every element on my farm such that they synergize.
0: Nice, we have to do that. That is a brilliant way to build a regenerative system. Absolutely. Awesome. I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it.
1: When I was looking for the different pieces of land, I found this piece, and I want to do my due diligence, so I researched about floodplains and whatnot, and I was satisfied that all was well based upon everything I had read and all the information I could find, and it seemed like there would be no issues, so I got here in October of 2013, but in the summer of 2015, the Red River came up almost to my doorstep.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: At first, I thought it was going to be the best year ever. Everything looked so glorious. I had endless amounts of rain. So my plants were just looking so wonderful. And But then it just never stopped raining. And it just never stopped the Red River usually sits around, I don't know, five ten feet high, based on this measurement or whatever. It was up to forty two feet. It was the record that it's ever achieved. It was wow. maybe five feet beneath, like the bridge going across thirty five from Texas to uh, Oklahoma. So, I, I, in fact, I remember I was working and I called my boss's executive assistant and said, "Would you mind if I please stop working? The Red River is approaching. Is shortly going to approach upon my house, and I'm having trouble concentrating." Wow. uh, Thankfully, it fell somewhat short, never made it to my house. But part of the fun to get to work, for instance, when I had to go in once a week, I would get in my kayak, wear a pair of shorts, have my work shirt on, put my laptop in a plastic bag, get in my kayak, kayak down my driveway, through the road, then up another road, and then carry my kayak to my farm manager's house where I would put it, and then walk a quarter mile through the woods, then to the high ground where my car was, put my pants on, get in my car, drive 65 miles to work, and then do the opposite in reverse. Anyway, so my failure was just not, so my suggestion first off is if you're going to buy a piece of land, make sure you talk to the locals before you do so. It isn't enough, like you cannot trust the information available as regards like floodplains necessarily. I'm living proof. So what did I do to to overcome it? I started, like I said, I live on a hill. So I just kept building my stuff further and further up the hill to ensure that, that my eggs weren't all in one basket. If it were to occur again, I knew there would be other growing beds and so on. And so that was that. It seems like almost as if I were hit by the plagues. The first year that I did, I, I planted all these sorts of things. And the first thing that happened, I call it the plague of the grasshoppers. I've never seen more grasshoppers in my life. They, Everything I bought from top to bottom, onions, blackberries, it didn't matter. Oh, wow. I didn't know that a grasshopper would eat an onion bowl, but yes, they will. They'll eat everything. So that was the first one. When you walked, there was a wave of grasshoppers that would, you know, like just Whoa. a couple feet away from you. They were just a cloud of them. So that was the first biblical plague and then i called it the plague of the flood and then lastly i don't know i suppose the plague of the neighbors marauding dogs <laughs> so as far as the flood i moved around i couldn't really figure out a solution to the grasshoppers other than i guess making sure that i had plots of land in various places my neighbor my farm manager she lives right behind me she didn't have any grasshoppers but a very short walk there were so many the only thing i could think of is maybe find a way to harvest them to feed my chickens that was about the best thing i could think of as far as making lemonade and then let's see and then lastly as regards the dogs so i learned i made chicken tractors based upon joel Salatin's design and it worked very well until the neighbor's dogs began to form marauding gangs and so once they began to break into my tractors, I had to build them more and more heavy. Like his stuff is supposed to be light so you can easily move them. Mine got to the point where they were quite heavy but there, nothing gets in them anymore. So that was one of the ways. And then the, another is simply the Great Pyrenees. The dogs don't get oh, close yes. to it anymore.
0: Yeah. And what do you consider your biggest success?
1: I guess I would simply go with the farm. There have been numerous naysayers, even friends and family sometimes that thought that I didn't know what I was doing, but I didn't pay too much attention to what other people thought because how could they know what's right for me? They're not me. And I Good. worked hard. I had a vision. You never fail until you give up. So every failure was just a lesson. If you play chess, you want to play the very best people. So they kick your butt. You're going to learn so much more from playing somebody that kicks your butt <laughs> than, than someone you beat. And this is just all the failures on the farm. Each failure was simply an opportunity to learn from my mistakes and, and to make a more resilient system going forward. So awesome. And what drives you? I think I'm not a religious person, but I would say I gain my spirituality from the earth. Like I, I would say, almost like a Gaia or something. I'm never happier than when I feel some sort of communion with the earth. And so the deeper I get into the biological systems and try to play a game of biomimicry in which I show great respect to what nature has produced over the the many millions of years. And then I just, I don't want to recreate the wheel. I simply want to show my admiration for these systems by using them to the best ability I have. Yeah. So that.
0: Cool. And if you could recommend one
1: book for our listeners, what would it be and why? So this one, I had to write it down because it, so it's the Bio-Integrated Farm by Sean Zadrnicek. The last name is spelled J-A-D-R-N-I-C-E-K. And this relates a lot to, um, what am I thinking of, permaculture. Like this notion of permaculture I heard is you want to make sure you have multiple, I, everything works together, right? Like synergies.
0: Yep.
1: His, the, he actually opens up his book talking about the chinampa as an ancient system. So when he talks about the beauty of his, okay, on the one hand, you've got the muck from the fish can be used for fertilizer. So that's the first thing. The fish itself, so that's food. You have, you have light coming not only from the sun, but from the fraction of the sun off of the water. You've got three. You've got the waterways themselves, which allow you to move around and easily transport stuff. You've got the, I mean, it's, oh, the microclimate's created. It's warmer in the winter. It's cooler in the summer. All of Mm -hmm. these things. So that's his initial example of how you can create synergies through multiple disparate ideas. And because, as I've mentioned, I have essentially unlimited water, this book seemed perfect. It's amazing what he does in this book, all the different ways in which he instance, He talks about greenhouses and dig a nice channel in the middle of it to act as a heat sink so Uh that you could potentially have this notion of eventually maybe growing citrus year-round using the the qualities of water to contain heat and create microclimates, stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, I if even if I don't follow his systems specifically, what I see is the brilliance of recognizing all the ways in which you can take different elements and combine them together to make where the sum is greater than their parts. Or is, yeah, uh, that's something I've been working towards, and I think that book is absolutely fantastic for those interested in that concept. Yeah, the bio
0: integrated farm. I've seen it. I have enjoyed it very much. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: I think that. The first thing that you have to figure out is what you're truly passionate about. And once you figure out what that is, then grit, G-R-I-T. You, I think people, you just have to never accept no for an answer. Once you know what you want, then just allow that passion to drive you forward. Never stop until you achieve what you're trying to achieve. If you're doing something that you don't like, it's easy enough to quit. You, But once you find what you truly love, it's not work any longer. It's just a life's mission trying to save the world, like what you're doing, like it does not every day you wake up and you know what you're supposed to do while you're there on earth. That's great. So figure out what that passion is for you and then then approach it that way. If even no matter what, you will have a meaningful life if you do that in a way that the acquisition of material things will never provide you with that that, at all. Oh, otherwise, also I would say don't waste money on crap. Save your money, pay off all your debts. I haven't had, I haven't paid a penny to, because I work in the financial industry, I understand the way in which it is inherently parasitic. We're like batteries in the matrix or something. There there are people who spend half their lives working for some other entity through the interest that is just taken from them. Uh, Don't do that. Just understand there's nothing more beautiful than freedom. These gilded cages of the house that you think you need that you can barely have take because you have to spend all your time working to get it. The car that you think you need so that you can work. The happiness you get when you're finally free. When in fact, last year I told my company that I was never gonna go back in the office and that if they needed to, they could fire me. And, and the reason I could do that is because I paid off all my debt and because I've created a system where I can produce most of my own food and I know exactly how to make money if I had to. And so it, it is true that I have not yet gone down the road of trying to make a lot of money. Honestly, I give a lot of stuff away. I wanna help people around me. So I uh, of feel the need. I'm blessed, like I, are you familiar with fire, finance, insurance, and real estate? Like these three entities used to make up like 9% of the GDP of the United States, and now it's over 50%. These wow. are inherently parasitic industries that make nothing whatsoever. But unfortunately, that's where you can make all the money. So I take the money from them, and then I create the system here, and I even help my neighbors. Oklahoma is a desperately poor place. So if I can take money from the Northeast and all those blue bloods and bring it down here, then that's useful. That's If I were to quit, I wouldn't be able to do that any longer, and all I could do is
0: Yeah. Yeah. Before we got on, we talked about Ishmael and Daniel Quinn. And one of the things he proposes is that food used to be free. Mm -hmm. And then we locked it up. And you've taken notes from Ishmael and you're growing food and sharing it widely, which I love that. That's great. You rock, man. Thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Chris. It was my pleasure. It was really a lot of fun to talk to you. Thank you. Oh, right back at you, man. How can our listeners get a hold of you?
1: So you can contact me through nysfarm.com, Nys is spelled New York City Zoo, like N-Y-C-Z I actually haven't updated that site in about five or six years. So it's a little bit behind the times. Like I haven't even put the aquaponic system in there, but there is a way to get in contact with me through that site. And who knows, maybe one day I'll update it again.
0: There you go. Nice. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash nice farm. That's N-Y-C-Z farm.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org.
0: It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit denalicanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's